I was tweeting out to Tommy all the pictures of Jameson and Guinness. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I think he actually owns he owns like a quarter of Jameson now. He's a, he's oh, a, I thought he's building a distillery actually in his backyard. He might be the only American-approved Irish whiskey maker. That's uh, that's that's awesome. They need to actually like he needs to go ahead and like stage or intern intern over there. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. Well, uh, you know, let's get started on this week uh, uh, this week's show. And uh, this is show number show number 18, episode number 18, and it's a beautiful morning here. And uh, we'd like to welcome you guys all to the Hot Isle. Uh, I'm Brian Carpenter, my co-host. Brent Piatti. Woo! So, uh, with Brian and Brent today, we have none other than Brad Maltz. Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. So, um, let's see, we were just talking before we got started here. You're, um, it was VCDX number 21, correct? <laughs> no, I'm number 36. Oh, shit. I did There's it again. Some other guys with the 21. Oh, that's right. So 36, Rick Shearer, which is who I should know better. He's a good friend. Rick Shearer's 21. We're, we're, our goal, we were kind of, you know, our goal is actually to get every single VCDX on here. And at this point, we've had like 17 and 36. I got it right for once. And uh, we can, we could get 21. And we've had 52 on. So, you know, we're about, you know, 1% of the way there, but we got a lot of shows to go. So we'll get there eventually. Um, and it's always awesome when we have a VCDX on because they have really keen talents and unique perspectives. So it's a lot of fun. Um, the goal of the, sh- get the number one, if you want. Yeah, I hear, I hear, I hear, you know, number one really well. Yes. I actually uh, was lucky enough to hire him away from VMware and he works for me. That's awesome. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's amazing, and we're gonna pull that favor one day. Uh, so you can just can you just tell him to come on, or do we have to ask nice? <laughs> uh, you should probably ask nice, but I could impart uh, some power on top of that if needed. Sweet. What's he doing for you? So John's actually working on some really awesome uh, top secret stuff that I'll talk about. But um, he's working on the concept of the future of CI in the world is that we're going to be application and use case driven. And we need to start figuring out how to standardize that and design tools around that. Awesome. And so actually, you know what? I think I, I remember talking to him a little bit about that. And it, that project has something to do with getting Tom Brady out of jail, right? <laughs> that, that is one aspect was free tom brady and well it worked for us so that yeah, worked out well so the goal of the show besides freeing tom brady and um is to basically discuss the growing demand for from customers uh around converged infrastructure and also hyper converged um like what does this trend signal uh who needs it who doesn't need it and frankly um let's get a, a, a deeper understanding of what it's all about my first question around that deep understanding is, is hyper-converged one word or two? <laughs> uh, I use it both ways, depending on who I'm talking to. Um, okay. I don't think there's actually a definition of that. I, I actually like to hyphenate it. Um, yeah, I so like there's a third too. way, right? So there's actually three ways to pull it off. So. Yeah. I don't like the, I don't like the all one word. Uh, it doesn't work for me. So either we need to hyphenate it or make it two different words. Um, but, you know, that's for... We'll let some governing body decide that. Yeah, we'll figure out who that governing body is. So, uh, Brad, your current your current job for I mean, you work for EMC, you work with us, and um, you're in the office of the CTO. Is that correct? That's correct. I and, work for uh, John Rose's organization. Awesome. And your I mean, obviously, your title here says senior director. Tell us what your job is. Uh, so, my sole purpose in life is to help drive converged infrastructure strategy for EMC. 
Um, that is from a technical perspective, marketing, um, everything that has to do with CI and hyperconverged. At some level, I get to touch. And that's uh, that's pretty valuable stuff these days. I mean, with uh, with all the conversation that goes on, it seems to be everything shifting into your bucket. So did you do that on purpose? <laughs> yes, I have that much control over the industry. Um, that's what the VCDX gives me. Awesome. Um, but, <laughs> but realistically, it was my dream job. I mean, I'm going on right now about a year and a half into this role at EMC. Uh, only a year and a half in at EMC, actually. And uh, when I had the opportunity to help come to EMC and fix and figure out the CI and hyperconverged market from a strategic level, it was, I couldn't pass it up. And this is your second tour at EMC, isn't that correct? It is actually. Uh, the two second history is uh, I actually came out of college as a data general. That was my first job out of school working on Avion and cluster in a box and term server in a box, they used to call it, which was actually the original CI. We used to package the Avion servers from DG. Clarion uh, storage mixed together with uh, Windows and brocade switches and MUX HPAs and ship them out as a complete stand-up solution that customers can turn on when they get to their site. So uh, that was actually my first stint. Uh, of course, when DG got acquired by EMC, I didn't want to work for the big, bad, evil marketing company um, because they didn't want to interview me in college. So I actually left and got pulled right back in as a field consultant for Clarion because they needed more people to help implement the Clarion since they were taking off in the field like a year later. So I've been back and forth with EMC a few times. Awesome. And so in between, after you left EMC, uh, which I've never heard of Evil Marketing Corporation, but I don't pay attention to all the fun names. Um, <laughs> you, uh, you had a couple of other jobs there. The last, the last job I remember you in before you came back was actually at Luminate. Um, uh, it was an interesting, interesting title. I think it was like Chief Cyber Uber Geek. Is that? <laughs> that was, it was funny because uh, for about nine years, I was CTO at a reseller out of New England called International Computerware, ICI. And we had ended up going through a merger um, with the company Illuminate out of Texas. And when we had done that, um, my CTO title did not immediately transfer over. So I was just having fun and came up with, uh, what was it? Chief Uber Geek Dances with Clouds or something like that. I forgot exactly what it was. It was really stupid, but um, I was just having fun, wanted to play around with things. And in terms of, uh, and Brad, in terms of your, your education, it looks like you, you got a degree in computer engineering. Um, what, uh, what prompted you to, to move into you know, the field of computer engineering into technology? Was it was it an upbringing? Was it something in particular that uh, you know caught your eye with it? But you know, what drove you to technology? No, it's really weird. Is uh, growing up, I was not a computer guy. I was, uh, you know, I grew up in the '80s. Um, went to school in the mid '90s, and uh, my first real computer. I mean, I had a Commodore 64. I had a Tandy 1000 HX, but I didn't really, you know, do geeky computer stuff with that. You know, I was more of the kid that I like the comic books and I like the cartoons and sports and traditional high school type of stuff. But when I got to college, I remember I, I made uh, I got in as a mechanical engineer, surprisingly enough, because I loved AutoCAD and doing all these like mechanical things. And in my first semester at UMass, I started to look out at like the future and I said, wow, is there a lot of money in this? And then there was this computer thing. And it just happened to be that I said, oh, let me try this. Went and bought my first computer, loved it, switched over to computer engineering, and uh, it's just been uphill from there. 
Wow, very cool. So you get out of school. What, um, what I guess drove you to then become a VCDX, right? I mean, there's again, uh, there's less than two hundred or something like that of you in the world. Um, how how did that come about, right? It's it's obviously it's it's a big grind that you have to do in a heavy lift. Um, but at what point in your career did you decide I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle this and go for it? So I think it happened a little bit by accident. I hate to say it like that. Um, but when we were trying to grow uh, my reseller back in the day, and I was the lead technology guy at that point, I, I'm always somebody that tries to challenge myself at every turn. I get bored fairly easily, I think like a lot of technologists, and I'm always looking for that next cool thing and, and how to help people in that next really great way. And for me, I was working with VMware since the 2.0 days. So I was pretty early into VMware. And when I had heard about all the certifications, I kept getting their certifications, not because I was a big cert guy, but simply because I just wanted to push myself to see if I could do it. Because I actually suck at taking tests. I'm horrible at test taking. But what ended up happening is I got into all the betas for all the DCD and the DCAs and all that back in the day. And it just happened that I passed them. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm at this stage. And not knowing too much about the VCDX because it was so early, I had just finished one of my plan designs and working with some of the other people that were going through the program, I'm like, oh, I guess I'll figure I'll try this. And it just worked out that it, it was like a, a snowball effect. Once I passed the betas, I had a plan design in place. People were pushing me into it at that point. I wanted to push myself. I just happened to go and take it. And amazingly enough, I was extremely surprised, extremely nervous going through it. But I actually was able to pass it. That's awesome, man. Yeah, so it was almost happenstance. Hey, that's that's good. At, at least you got it done, man. It doesn't matter how you got there. It's just uh... yeah, yeah, no, I got it done, and then from there it became very interesting because you know VCDX took off again. I was in the thirties, so for me, I was the person before me was Scott Lowe that went in, and then Chris Kalati was right after me, who actually helped me go through the process, and uh, it it was pretty crazy to like you know be through this process with so many people that became so publicly well known um and a lot of them are actually friends to this day very cool so hey um we do every every week we do a segment called this week in tech history and uh this week is going to be no different and i think we would be remiss if we didn't um if we didn't talk about the elephant in the room right i mean look we all work for EMC uh and Unless you've been hiding under a rock and you live in this space, um, you know about the Dell EMC mashup. So uh, this week in tech history, in October of 2015, the world's largest deal in history occurs when Dell buys EMC for $67 billion. Uh, this deal, if you look at the, the next three deals, the three biggest deals in history, we're almost as big as all three of those combined. So Avago bought Broadcom for $36 billion. Lucent Technologies bought Ascend Communications for $23 billion. And then Facebook buys WhatsApp for $21 billion. Some of those you could argue are maybe not necessarily tech, you know, tech in the way that we think, of, think about it, but nonetheless, biggest tech deal in, in history. Um, so again, elephant in the room, um, I know we've we've kind of got you know maybe I, I want to say our hands tied, but there are certain things that we can and can't say, right? Um, so, Brad, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this? 
I mean, realistically, uh, we're five days in now, right? So it happened Monday. It's now Friday. Um, I was actually, funny enough, uh, I was overseas in Ireland on my wedding anniversary, which was Monday, when all this went down. So it was a very interesting wedding anniversary for me. But um, it, it's, it's interesting to say that you're taking these two giant companies that are trying to find their way through the industry right now, and you're trying to bring them together, hopefully for the better. Um, and without understanding the plan and all that, right now it, it's all speculation, obviously. But if, if you look at what EMC does really well, and if you look at what Dell does or has, then I, I think there are some synergies, there's some overlaps, and the next few months are going to be where we have to figure all that out. Um, of course, we're in the 60-day right now um, go shop period. So, right, things could get more interesting, who the hell knows, in the next, uh, you know, few weeks at this point. Yeah. And, it, and it's certainly possible. I mean, we can all, we, we can all see the, the writing on the wall, but it is during this go shop, which is pretty standard for everything and everyone, including when Dell actually went private, they had a go shop as well to make sure that everybody's getting the right deal. Um, during this time, we could have another surprise and the, just like with data domain back in the day and, and who, whoever was trying to get that, um, there could be a surprise and somebody else could actually go ahead and take this deal. So it's pretty difficult to actually even make strict uh, strict lines uh, when something could change in the next 55 days. Yeah, speculation, yep. you know. Yeah. So, and there were, I mean, you mentioned, uh, Brent, you mentioned a couple of acquisitions. There was one other one. Uh, I mean, when we look at the whole value of what's going on here, uh, I think it's really key to talk about EMC, you know, roughly, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, picked up Elocity for five million. Uh, and with that, we got Chad Sackage, right? Uh, and here we are, uh, you know, something like five years later, and Dell is picking up EMC for 67 billion. Is, I mean, it seems like we could draw a line there and say that Dell's really trying to pick up another aqua hire to get Chad. <laughs> right? uh, I guess you could say that. Yeah, that's an uh, interesting perspective. It, I mean, that's what, that's my theory. Um, you know, the, it's, it's, I mean, it seems to ring true. I mean, we saw, I mean, everybody sees the value of our acquisition of VMware uh, when we picked it up for something like 600 or $700 million. Uh, and it's turned into this uh, roughly 30 something billion dollar company. Um, a lot of value was driven out of that, right? And the value of EMC is, is being dragged along with it from our ownership. Uh, and it certainly, clearly it's like a, not a key partnership is an understatement. Um, and so I, you know, there, there's some underpinnings of that. Everybody sees the value out of picking up something like that and making it much bigger. It really does tell me that this is all about Chad. So yep. it, it, it could be Chad. It could be Rick actually too. You never know. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, and again, I really apologize for mistaking your BC, your VCDX number. You don't have to be that mad. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about what, I mean, let's, what's not happening with this, right? I mean, there's a, there is a little bit of concern. Um, you know, people are asking a lot of questions. Are there things that are not necessarily going away because of this? Or, you know, there's some assumptions that people may have on the street that you can discuss? I mean, at this point, everything is status quo. Nothing is going away that I know of, right? Um, uh, there's going to have to be levels of discussion that happen over the next six to nine months to understand how things uh, rationalize out portfolios and figure all that out. But uh, as of today, everything is 100% status quo. We're moving forward, at least in the CI space that I'm tied to extremely well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not seeing a direct impact as of right now. Okay. 
Well, we've uh, we've talked about it enough. Uh, at this point, it's frankly um, we can make up a bunch of stuff and act like we're really smart, and that would be cool. But <laughs> about specifically this, but there's a lot of grown-ups that are touching this that are way beyond our pay grade. Uh, and the only way I get to talk to them is on Twitter. So um, you know, we're we're gonna move on from it. Um, you know, make up whatever stories you want because we really can't <laughs> say we really can't define this thing just yet. Uh, which is my opinion on it. And so, I mean, we could talk about what, it, what we think it means. Um, I was just joking with somebody about, you know, what other mergers look like and why people do it. There's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of positivity. Um, it's hard to really, uh, frankly, it's really hard to pin it down right now. Um, it's a moving target as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think, I think Brad, you summed it up, though. It's like today, it's status quo, right? I mean, that's yep. all we know, and that's, that's all we can count on at this point. Yeah, so, I've ahead. been th- I've been through mergers before, so it's uh it's not new to me, and it's not new to a lot of people here. That's the one thing I can say is, EMC and Dell have done fairly well at the M and A game, uh, both individually. So we have a lot of experience between both companies going through this. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure Silver Lake's no joke either. They probably know what they're looking at too. Right. So moving on, let's talk about something really fun because all that financial crud is boring. Um, you know, let's uh, unless we're talking about buying little, you know, hidden startups with like uh, eight people in it. Let's talk about something fun. So we've got this. Uh, the real topic here is converged infrastructure, um, and you know, I'm gonna let Brent fire away. All right, Brad. So uh, I think you know we've all heard the term converged infrastructure, and it's getting thrown around in in many different ways, right? Um, and I think a lot of times, frankly, it's used incorrectly on the street. So I, I'd like to get from you uh, your definition of what uh, converged infrastructure is and means and does. Sure. Um, there's two ways to approach this. The, the first discussion I usually bring up with people, and, and I think it's valid here, is the actual definition of CI. Um, and whenever I try to talk to people about it, I always start off with what is the definition of CI because otherwise you could be talking about two totally different things. So for us, and the way I, I, I've driven this discussion is that CI is really the deployment and consumption of CPU, memory, disk, network, and software as a complete system. It, it basically means that you are trying to get everything in a box, whether that everything is some hyper-converged thing made up with software-defined aspects of it, or whether it's taking all these storage arrays and separate switches and separate servers and and gluing them together and wrapping them properly and delivering them in in a complete way, you're always trying to get to the same goal of delivering a complete something. So what if you're taking components, uh, you're picking and choosing those things, and putting them together... Um, in a stack, and uh, is that truly converged, or is that a reference architecture? And then, what are the differences between those two things? I think for me, if it's not being delivered from the manufacturer as one thing, then I mean, for for what I'm running into, it's not truly converged unless you are getting it from the manufacturer as that one thing. Um, if you are going and getting your own servers and your own storage and your own software components and you're putting them together, it could be based on a reference architecture, um, but that's still not converged, right? It's, it's a DIY. I, I used to use the term DIY CI, 
DIY converged infrastructure, because that's really what that is in the end. But it's not really where converged is going and kind of is today. So is it is it a what? So let's 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 I think differentiate. Let's let's look at different um, like you know say NetApp FlexPod or EMC's VSpecs, and then something like a VBlock, right? What are what are the differences different. between those? The respect. The fact is, um, a VSpec's reference architecture is not really converged in the end. It can be presented as converged. And again, this is whose perspective are you looking at, right? If you're taking it from a manufacturer's perspective, I think I'm giving you the manufacturer's perspective. If you take it from a consumer's perspective, are they getting the VSpecs or the FlexPod from their channel partner as a complete system that gets shipped to them and delivered to them as one thing? They could technically view that as converged. There is the ability to do that. But again, I mean, there's such a gray line there. I, I like to play off the aspect that if it's not delivered from manufacturing, it really is not converged or hyper-converged. And is there any, I mean, is there any tenet to the fact that if you're, uh, you know, like in a reference architecture, obviously a bit of your, um, your support experience is, um, is going to be different as well as um, one of my customers mentioned this the other day. Uh, there's the whole concept of upbreaking it, right? You do an upgrade in one component um, and whether, regardless of where it's, um, essentially delivered from, if you're, if it's not designed to be upgraded as a unit, um, then you also have lost that whole converged experience. Exactly. I think the other way that, uh, I mentioned my definition at the beginning, but the other way to look at CI and hyperconverged is you got to look at why people are buying CI. And I think you're hitting on that, Brian, which is people are trying to simplify their user experience of technology. And remember, I used a very specific word there in user experience, not user interface. What I mean by that is the user experience is everything from pre-sales, architecture, um, acquisition, right, deployment, um, all the way through management, monitoring, upgradability, all those things are all part of a user experience. And the reason that people are acquiring CI and hyperconverge is because they want to keep simplifying that for their admins to be able to go off and do things that are more important at some levels than just trying to keep the thing up and running and do all the operational stuff. If we can automate and simplify a lot of the manageability and the supportability of these things, then that is why CI and hyperconverged are product technologies today and growing in the future. And and so we you hit on a couple of things that we're going to touch a little bit later, but you also said one word that was the next in line. We've talked about reference and where that fits and what it is. We've talked about converged and where it is. A I guess I don't know if I consider I can't tell if it's a subset of of converged or a completely different business altogether. Hyperconverged. Is it is it a a unique version of converged or is it its own thing? Is it its own category altogether? Uh, it, so this is my opinion. It is totally a subset of converged. Okay. Hyper converged is really just another architecture inside of what I would call the converged infrastructure taxonomy, mm -hmm. right? It is another aspect of it. Whether you look at converged as putting together traditional storage array servers and networks or whether you're turning some of those things like the storage into a software-defined storage layer and utilizing the internal drives in those servers that you actually had in the traditional model of CI, 
I think they're all under the same taxonomy umbrella. Now, that's a very technically oriented approach to it. There's, of course, the marketing approach. And anybody in the marketing arena loves to keep coming up with new names, new acronyms, new segments of the market. So hyperconverged has kind of emerged as its own thing. But from an architecture technology perspective, it's not. And so you mentioned a couple of things, right? The way kind of it looks like a different, you know, stack of converge. And I, I tend to agree with you, right? Um, it's simply uh, taking what was three discrete job functions, combining it generally into one uh, one piece and then repeating that piece over again. Um, but the software-defined thing is a little interesting to me. I find it to be a, a, an interesting part. Do you believe a converged infrastructure could have completely software-defined storage? Not hyper-converged converged um so i think that's where you start to get into this separation i think if you if you play off the technical aspect of what hyperconverged is it's a it's a dense consolidation of converged simply because you are removing a physical aspect and you're utilizing another physical aspect in its place so if we're removing the storage array and utilizing internal drives in the server then by definition, hyperconverged is that aspect, the software-defined storage layer utilizing internal drives. Thereby, a converged infrastructure thing cannot be hyperconverged and vice versa. So then I'll ask you, I'll follow on and see if I can, I'm trying to uh, trick you up a little bit here. Um, I, I'm looking inside EMC. I'm sure there's another way to do this outside of it. Um, let's just take um, Scale.io and put it on a bunch of servers as the Scale.io scale node is in a rack along with um, UCS and all the everything else that comes in a traditional type of uh, vBlock. Could you not yes. just have traditional converged with a software-defined storage uh, space there? Uh, is, it not, is it not done because it doesn't make sense or because it just um, is becomes overly complex or why would you not just do something like that and have a software defined storage only node? Well, you, so the scale IO node is a software defined storage only node, but you got to look at the purpose of what the scale IO node is, right? The scale IO nodes purpose in life is to present to you more software defined storage for other things to utilize. That's realistically where it, it, it's mainly targeted at, which means that, um, it is, first of all, not CI in that respect, right? You're not running customer application workloads natively on that storage-only thing. But if you have other servers that are trying to attach to that software-defined appliance-like thing, which is what the Scale.io node in this reference is, then that I don't think that's CI. I don't think that's converged at that point. Because, again... Converge is how you manage the whole thing and support the whole thing. You are still supporting separate entities in that environment you just described with Cisco and Scale.io nodes totally separately. Okay. So go right. ahead. I mean, so you, you could take the support angle of it, which is what we just did there. You could take the um, management orchestration aspect of it, right, which is when you get into hyper-converged. M&O is very important, which I know we could talk more about. Um, so it really depends on the angle you actually look at it. So you just brought up hyperconverged. Um, you know, from from my perspective, it is a it's a it's a well it's a hyper simplified um, way of operating uh, in you know in an IT environment. Um, today, obviously, it's complex. Um, you know, we've got a bunch of knobs and dials that we can we can go and tweak stuff. 
Um, but as things get, uh, you know, you move up the M&O stack, uh, hyper-converged uh, makes life easier and simpler. Do you ever see that truly moving into the enterprise space? Like, you know, we're talking large enterprises to where they're used to just tinkering. Um, and, but taking away that, that, that ability and moving to, towards something that's turnkey, simple, you've got a very basic GUI, it gives you everything you need, but you're not down in the weeds. Does it have a place? I, I think what you're you're hitting on a few different things, right? As we go into the discussion of management orchestration, um, the way that hyperconverged as of today has presented MNO is more of that simplified, you know, GUI to try to ease the burden of managing everything. At the same point, I think the longer term goal of MNO you know, whether it's EMC, whether it's in the industry, is to give people the ability to control their entire technology stack up as whether it's a single entity or a bunch of integrated entities working together. It's trying to give them the programmatic way of managing them as well as a GUI way of managing them. Now, in the hyperconverged space, they take that to an extreme of trying to simplify that as far as possible. But our belief is that it has to go beyond that. You have to still give people the controls that they need, that they maybe are used to. But we have to enable them to do this in a little bit more of the DevOps fashion for the future. right? And this is where we're moving to is M&O is not just there to simplify somebody's life. It's there to actually streamline and automate and operationalize things differently. And if you take that approach with M&O, then you're going to see where we're actually trying to bring EMC and many of our M&O types of discussions. We're trying to give people controls of the data center that are far and wide reaching that give you a lot of controls over heterogeneous things out there. And so, you know, when we're looking at all these things, right, we're talking about MNO, we're talking about, you know, you know, cultural shifts and who, who controls what and what's going on. Um, you mentioned a couple of things around consumption and who and how they're consuming. Um, so if we pull out a little bit, you've answered a couple of the questions, but maybe, you know, another way of looking at it, what is, you know, what is driving the need for converged and hyper-converged? Uh, clearly years ago, Acadia and then VCE didn't just wake up and go, Hey, we're going to create a market. Um, the market created the need that Acadia and, and VCE uh, answered to. And then, you know, other people, you know, our competitors, Nutanix Simplivity, even, you know, our own products here have con con created even this hyper-converged thing. But there's something, there's obviously a need that's driving this. So what is that need? You know, an analogy I like to use actually when this discussion comes up is actually to equate the converged and hyper-converged market back to the consulting industry. And what I mean by that is when you look at customers and how they work with consultants out there, there are some customers that say, I don't need help from anybody. Nobody come and do professional services. Nobody do consulting. Uh, we're going to do it all ourselves. We're going to read. We're going to research. We're just going to figure it out. Then there's another group of people out there that tend to work a little bit closer with like professional services, people in bars, where they want somebody to come in to get them going, to help drive things towards a best practice but then hand it off and say, okay, everybody else, can you uh, internally please manage the stuff that that VAR, that professional services team just did? But then there's a third segment of people that just want to outsource all of IT support and management. 
right? They want to use IBM Global Services or HP ZDS or Capgemini or all these different large companies. And they're the ones that basically want to optimize how their team works and offload as much as possible. And that's kind of where I, I almost see the VCE discussion is actually began when VCE saw the need for companies to say, we want to offload things. We want people to help us as much as possible. Well, they're going after those types of people originally. They were going after the people that said, hey, somebody come in and do all this for us and just make it work and support it all for me. And I just want to request things when I need them. Right. Whereas when you look at where hyperconverged and some of the newer CI types of stackups are taking people, people are starting to move towards this DevOps mentality of saying, we do want to have control over that, but we want to have a different level of control over that. So can you give us something that makes it simpler, but still lets us do a lot of things that we need to do? So they're moving almost down the stack into this world of the professional services consulting types of guys, which is give me the box, let me run the wizard, let me manage it. And I don't need you to go as far as you would go as like a VCE would go with the white glove service and all the extra support they do. And that's kind of how I say VCE was very, very forward looking in how they did things, which is also, by the way, why not everybody out there is always a VCE fan. Some people don't see the value of VCE because they either want to DIY it or they just want a little bit of help and they don't want to go as far as VCE would have gone. And so, I mean, and that's kind of the, that's the, that was the next question. So thank you. Um, you know, just put the ball on the tee for me. Um, <laughs> you've got, you've got the whole, uh, I'm going to go out, I'm going to use my own team. I'm going to go design it. I'm going to get a bunch of discrete parts. I'm going to put it together and I'm going to make my environment. And that's kind of the, the far left of the, of the guardrails, right? And the far right of the guardrails is it's going to show up and it's going to be working and I'm just going to deploy uh, applications on top of it. Uh, and that's right. the far right. It's a bit of a, a black box experience. Um, it seems like the shift is, I, I mean, if it seems like there's two parts of the shift. One is um, cultural impact uh, and one is uh, business impact of how far to the uh, black box just focus on applications they can get. Um, number one, is it necessary to shift all the way to the right for everybody eventually? Uh, when I say to the right, I mean, you know, towards just, uh, you know, it being an application box that you deploy things on, uh, or are there things that prevent it inside of the business or the culture and keep businesses from kind of, um, essentially attaching towards this new model, which is more beneficial to the bottom line. You know, it's funny. I think you just, you just nailed it. You hit the actual, uh, major discussion I have with almost every customer, which is, Many, it goes back to if you don't want to manage IT and you just want to deploy applications and have an application aware environment, like an AWS like experience or an OpenStack like experience, then there are people that want to move to that world. And those are the people that are pushing pretty hard into the DevOps mentality and, and you know, microservices architectures and all the things we can talk about. But unfortunately, the reality of corporate America and corporate global at the same point, is that um, most organizations are not set up politically, organizationally, people-wise to actually go and consume CI the way that a lot of CI platforms are being designed. And this brings us back to what I do with a lot of customers. I actually walk them through a, psycho, a psychoanalysis test, which is, can you figure out where your organization is on a maturity scale from a traditional IT 
type of an organization all the way through an application type of an organization. And what usually happens is people start telling me that they really want to get into this IT transformation type of world where they want to break those boundaries between networking and storage and servers and security. But the reality of it is they've been working like that for over 20 or 30 years. And it takes a very large shift for people to move out of that mentality. So there are small pockets of people that are great in doing that. And that's why hyperconverged is making inroads in, in a lot of small pocket and small use case areas for many companies because they have individuals that are trying to break those boundaries themselves. But there are still so many organizations that have those boundaries between storage and networking and virtualization and whatnot that you move into the kind of the blocks, the, the V-block mentality, where it's actually making more and more sense to consume a v-block for those types of customers because they do want to have the storage guy manage a storage thing when you go to hyperconverged, you don't have a storage thing that's independent that you have a group of people that need to manage it right so until you make that business transformation over to consolidation of operations and stuff you're gonna have a need at some level for a v-block like thing um, and, and we're actually seeing more traction with more discussions around how people can actually consume vBlocks as CI today, even when they start looking at hyperconverged, because they want to, they have to align with how their company is organized. Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, in terms of of adoption, right? I mean, there's there's it's a cultural thing, right? Uh, I would say first of all, people are maybe intimidated by having a you know a fully converged stack come in, and they're like, uh, "What does that mean for my job?" Well, it just means that you know you kind of retool and reset, and and um, you're still valuable to the business. They still need those people, but what you can do is spend more time on the things that are valuable and less time on the things that are not, right? So racking right. and stacking and cabling and all that kind of kind of junk. So it's I, funny, actually. One thing I want to add to that: we've actually I've done a lot of VDI and end user computing consulting back in my prior life, and this was one of the biggest discussions we had around VDI. And I know that's a major use case actually in CI and hyperconverge. But whenever I would do consulting around VDI to see if people were ready to deploy and manage a VDI environment or a full end user computing environment, a lot of it came back to the the discussion of hey, you guys over there that are doing your break fix for laptops, you might not have to do that anymore. So why don't we figure out what you guys should be doing in this new world, how you can package out applications or manage the infrastructure under the covers, right? And I think that's now happening at a much broader scale within hyperconverged and CI. And, and you, you were mentioning uh, you know, the whole what people are managing and what they're touching. Um, I like to talk to – it's one of my favorite things. I don't know if I've created it, but I've – I, you know, I like to talk to customers about the idea of, you know, do you, do you write about the fact that you know what cage nuts to use on your resume? Do you write that you know how to use Rails? Do you, you write how well and how fast you can rack a 4U server in a stack and then plug it in and cable it? I seriously doubt any of that goes on your resume. And so my, my thought to them and my opinion on this is that if you don't put it on your resume to go find your next job or to go show the market the skills you have, why in the world would you do it? Uh, if, because it probably doesn't add benefit to the business at that point, in my opinion. Um, so the, if you're focused on trying to pick out what kind of Panduit rack, which I love those, and what type of power supplies go in there and what type of whips are on it and the power, you know, all that kind of, if you're focused there and you're not writing that on your resume, then you're really focused on the wrong things for both yourself, 
your future and the business's future. Um, and so, you know, that's what I'm talking about. It's like getting out of the, the intricacies of putting things together is, is, I mean, you frankly, you're telling yourself that when you don't write it on LinkedIn as what I did in my job this week. <laughs> right. So, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to digress there, but when you're talking about, you know, cabling and all that kind of stuff, that's, that's my opinion on it. Yeah. So, so let's, let's, uh, kind of get back to the crux of the question. Um, so, you know, CI hyperconverged, increased agility, decreased risk, um, you know, probably a lower OPEX, uh, cost, but you know, then you hear concerns come up of, um, inflexibility or, you know, I need to have, you know, uh, KVM, Hyper-V, VMware, OpenStack kind of model. Like, how do how do we fit into that mold of being, you know, uh, quote unquote inflexible, but also completely shatter that mold um, and give ultimate flexibility? Yeah, that, that's uh, that's actually a tough problem to solve, and, and that's part of why you know, as we look at it from an EMC perspective, a strategic angle on this, you can't have one product do everything for the exact reason that you stated right there. When we actually measure our CI and hyperconverged product sets, we actually look at three major concepts. We look at simplicity, optimization, and flexibility. What I usually tell people is, if you're going to ask me to build the simplest thing known to man, the big easy button of hyperconverged or converged, unfortunately, you're not going to have options of hardware under the covers and data services. It's just going to be everything is going to be fully automated with no options. Now, that might be a use case for a lot of people that want to get out of the management game and just want this thing to be as simple as possible. There's also the other end of the spectrum, which is there are still people in IT, uh, only a few as far as I can tell, that are control freaks. Okay, well, maybe 90%. But the majority of IT want control of what CPU they want and how much memory they're going to get. And because of that, there's different levels of flexibility we can offer. We can go and open up the entire Intel and Cisco catalog of servers inside of VCE and say, have at it. You figure out what you want, and we'll make sure that it aligns with best practices. But there's a reality that says that's almost too much choice, right? Too much choice causes a lot of questions and architectural decisions that have to be made, which slows up the process of acquisition and deployment. So the way I actually like to look at it moving forward is, the industry has to find that balance point of optimal flexibility. We have to be able to say, okay, we know Intel has 30 different processors in the next generation processor family. But in reality, for 98% of the use cases out there, aren't these four or six choices enough for you to choose from to meet all of your needs in this discussion? And that's how the discussion of flexibility is going to be moving forward. We have to give enough flexibility without causing too much confusion that takes away from why people are acquiring converged and hyperconverged. And some, some of that flexibility is not just in the, 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 the specific product set itself. Um, you know, my question for you is um, kind of, if I simplify it down, it's literally, can you do, um, a, a traditional data center, most people, you know, well, vast majority of the world, um, considering that they have legacy and a bunch of other things, can you do a single product solution of HCI or just CI or just, you know, just one type of thing to kind of solve the entire data center's problems? Um, I would say no, 
and that's why we are doing what we're doing at EMC. It is simply because if I have a customer I walk into and that customer tells me, hey, we have these 100 remote offices. We host anywhere from 5 to 30 virtual machines out there. Um, we don't need a lot of horsepower. We don't have a lot of rack space. It's in a closet somewhere, no AC. Right? It's a very common discussion. Well, I'm not going to go stick a V-block out there most likely. Right? They already have an existing rack with probably some of their networking gear in there. They just want to get a 2U thing to pop in there that they can turn on quickly, manage all as one giant network entity thing. And that's really where hyperconverge goes to. But if that same exact customer comes back and says, hey, now I have a 300 terabyte Oracle database that is the back end of my environment or an SAP environment, whatever it is, that's just gigantic with crazy amounts of throughput. In reality, hyperconverge is not made for that. No matter what you want, you need heavy data services. You need all the right replications, synchronous replications. You need all the integrations into the applications natively from management stacks. You need all the things that a more of a traditional CI stack up is going to deliver to you. Now, of course, those are two very far ends of the spectrum. But as you look at a lot of the enterprise customers out there, that's what they deal with. They deal with do they try to shoehorn in a single solution to make everything work? Or would they like to have choice and be able to have these different uh, conversion, hyperconverged things for them? So we're finding that they need a portfolio of things to meet all of their needs. They can't just go in with a single thing. Okay. And that, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. So you, but you've, you've mentioned a block and where it kind of, I mean, it generally fits and there's places where it does and doesn't fit. And you've mentioned this, uh, hyper-converged appliance in a place where it fits, which is, you know, always, it's like out on the oil rig or, you know, where the, like the, the, um, the guy, the roughneck who's putting together the, the tubing to get oil out of the ocean floor is also the same guy who racks and stacks and manages it, um, kind of story. Um, yep. then we have this, this rack. I mean, there's literally a rack scale version of hyper-converged where, what, what's the picture for it? Where is its kind of sweet spot and why does it exist? So the, the great thing about where the rack architectures are going is there's the current version of rack architectures, which is based heavily on hyper-converged architecture, right? And that's what we're talking about right now. We have it, we call it the VX rack from VCE. But the concept there was that in a lot of these enterprise data center deployments now, people are looking to do this hyper-converged software-defined commodity hardware type of scalability discussion. But they want to do it in this concept that they want to build their own Amazon on site. They want to build their own DevOps cloud, right? They want to build out these tier two applications that don't have the heft or the needs of all of their tier one apps that we just spoke about, like Oracle and SAP and those things. And they want to build it at scale. They don't just want to put 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 nodes out there, but they want to get it where the network has been proven from an architectural perspective that it's fully integrated has enough port density, has enough um, scalability to get them up to support their entire group of development applications that are going into this thing, but from a scale and cost perspective that allows them to mimic or align with things like an AWS cloud or an OpenStack environment. So there are other paradigms that have to be brought into these rack scale things. And that's things like you have to understand the network architecture to the point that that network architecture has to be integrated. In a hyper-converged appliance world, network architectures are not integrated into the appliances just by the nature of being an appliance. In the rack scale world, we took those appliances 
and we figured out the problems of scalability from a network side for you. And because it's not just us doing this, a lot of people are heading down this road, but this is what I believe we have to do when people want to build on-site tier two DevOps style private hybrid cloud things. And that's really where these rack scale architectures are taking us right now. And the future is just wild when you start looking at some of the technologies that are coming out for that. So if we look at scalability um, in the converged space, you know, in the, in the hyper-converged space, um, if you need anything, you need extra storage, you need extra compute, you need extra memory, you scale those uh, all linearly. Um, in the block space, you can scale compute and storage non-linearly. Um, in the perhaps in the in the rack space and and this is you know so I, so I watched you present at looking ahead 2015 um, on YouTube and you brought up something called uh, disaggregated hardware and I think that maybe what you are alluding to is being able to scale nonlinearly network compute and uh, uh, and storage but um, what does that mean because I, I guess I wasn't fully sure um, what disaggregated hardware was. So you're, you're hitting on two different things that I can totally, they do get confused all the time when I talk about it. So the first aspect that you're hitting on is nonlinear scalability, right? And this simply goes back to the understanding that in traditional, and I hate to say traditional hyperconverged appliances, but they've been around for a little while at this point, with the traditional hyperconverged appliance model, when you bought that node or that brick, you bought um, CPU, memory, disk, and network, and usually a hypervisor license tied to that. And if you just needed another 20 terabytes of software-defined storage that you wanted to attach to an existing hyper-converged environment, but you wanted that to be purpose-built just to deliver storage, you didn't want to have the cost overhead of needing a hypervisor license on there. You didn't want to have the cost overhead of needing heavy CPU and memory for that thing. Well, unfortunately, with most hyper-converged appliances, you couldn't really do that. And that was one of the things in the rack scale architecture today to do nonlinear scalability, you have to be able to scale storage out separately from the quote unquote hyperconverged appliances. And this goes back to like the scale IO node, storage only node type of a thing. Why shouldn't we be able to deliver a 2U chassis with 24 drives, a single CPU, low end CPU, not high end, with only 64 gigs of memory and some type of a Linux kernel, not a hypervisor, that has scale I.O. on it, and be able for somebody to acquire that to grow their existing scale I.O. hyperconverged environment. And that was the original intention of where nonlinear scalability came from. Now, the second thing you hit on is when I actually move into the discussion of disaggregated hardware. And this starts to get very forward-looking um, in respect of there is a world that we're moving into um, that basically says hardware is changing how it's being architected and delivered for different use cases. There are use cases that are starting to pop up out there that are what I would call application-driven or application-aware, right? And what I mean by that is there are people that want to be able to request an application and they will, when they request that application, that system of control, the MNO system, should understand what that application actually wants and needs 
from a CPU memory and a disk and maybe other types of hardware element perspective. Why shouldn't the hardware under the covers have the ability to configure itself to meet the needs of that application? Why shouldn't you have CPU and memory in the different ratios be able to join together through fabrics to go and say, I'm now a logical server that you can go load Redis on, you can load memcached on, you can lo go load ESXi on. And dynamically, you should be able to control the hardware through that. Now, the only way to get to this really awesome future of application-controlled hardware is to break apart the boundaries that we have in the hardware today. If you were to look at a traditional server today, when you want to add extra drives to a CPU complex, well, if it's in a 2U server, you are stuck at being limited at 24 drives for every two sockets, right? Well, what if somebody wants to go to 36 or 48 drives? Or what if somebody wants to go and attach something that's not supported in that chassis? Well, in a traditional white box commodity, traditional server model, you can't do that. As we move into disaggregated hardware, we're actually going towards a world where you're going to be able to merge together all these different hardware elements through these fabrics programmatically to be able to deliver applications and consumers what they need on the fly from a whole bunch of bin of parts. And that's what we really mean by disaggregated hardware of the future. Yeah, so um, our minds are blown. We're a little bit speechless. Sounds like fun. I'll have to um, re-listen to this yeah. yeah, after the fact. <laughs> is that a... Is that <laughs> Soak a, it all up. Is that a... Um, so we'll see that disaggregated hardware is just going to fall in our laps in 2016 or, you know, where are we at? Where is that? Um, you talk about it being the, the answer of the future. Uh, how far is the future? Um, the future is anywhere from 2016 through 2018 at the beginning point. And I say that simply because there's a lot of projects out there that are working on this. Um, Intel has something that they call their RSA project, which is a rack scale architecture project. Um, you have a lot of different organizations that are going into this type of a future. Um, I, I will preface this by saying, if you look at a technology that we call microservers, right? You have HP's Moonshot. You had AMDC Micro, which unfortunately um, didn't survive. You have technologies like that. You almost look at them and say they were sort of starting to try and get there at some level. And then you look at what some new other technologies are going to be offering up for us. Things like non-volatile memory. Things like PCIe Gen 4. Things like silicon photonics. Um, things like standardization across Ethernet and commoditization of Ethernet fabrics out there. There are all these different technologies that are finally coming to the cost point and the maturity point that we can build some of these really cool systems based on a lot of learnings over the years from traditional servers and microservers. So I can't give you an actual date because it's going to depend on what vendor you're talking about and, and you know, what feature sets you want. But I would say look for it in 2016 as the beginning starting of that. And it will probably be getting more mature through 17 and 18. Sounds awesome. Sounds like a lot of fun. So, I mean, you know, we've kind of gone through the entire scale here of, um, you know, build at your own reference architectures, converged infrastructure, hyper-converged, all the way up to, um, you know, the future of disaggregated hardware and uh, micro servers, which is not microservices, which is still fun. Um, 
and 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 I'm listening here, and let's just say I'm way I'm way at the beginning of I'm building it myself out of necessity, not because it's the way I think I need to run my business. What what does it take, or what should a company do, or an organization, or a team do to go? We want to start heading towards um, having a strategy around converge and hyperconverge. What does that What does that conversation look like internally, and how do you how do you start it as a customer? So there's a few angles to it, depending on where you are as a company, right? Um, if you are very much a traditional IT company and you still have all those silos and uh, demarcation lines between all your teams and operations and everything, you have to start to look at what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to go down the path of consolidation and convergence from an operations perspective and management perspective? If you want to start to do that, then you have to understand how you're going to actually uh, undertake that. And that's a very tough thing for you to analyze and look at. And there's actually a lot of people out there that are helping organizations begin to do that. So that's a great consulting type of a discussion to have with people. I bring that up because that is more of a business transformation discussion where CI is an enabler of that. So if you want to go down the roads of that, there are different types of conversion, hyperconversion, that might help you begin to change the behaviors of your organization to align with that. That's the first thing. Um, now, if you're already down the road of kind of trying to streamline yourselves and realign operations in the business, then looking at um, CI and hyperconverge is probably already there at some level inside your organization. So what I would tell you is to take that next step or that next discussion point. Whenever somebody looks at hyper-converged and converged today, they're looking at having to acquire a thing for them to begin this look of, of managing things as converged or hyper-converged. But there are a lot of technologies out there in the industry that do not actually come as just converged or hyper-converged that will begin to allow you to further your convergence of operations and the business side of things. For example, one project that I did want to bring up to make sure people understand it is something that uh, I've been working very heavily on, something called OnRack. Now, the way this ties in is um, our, OnRack is a project we have at EMC that actually does heterogeneous hardware management and orchestration. What I mean by that is we are designing a single API-driven programmatic layer that gives you the ability to manage your Dell, HP, Lenovo, Supermicro, Quanta, Intel Whitebox server environments, as well as your network environments from a single perspective. So it's almost like merging together Dell's OpenManage, HP OneView, Cisco UCS Manager, IPMI, and all these other things into a single layer. So it won't matter what hardware you have under the covers and, and all that fun stuff. But you could deal with BIOS and firmware management, hardware configuration management. You could deal with uh, loading operating systems, upgrading OSs, and changing out OSs, all that fun stuff, but from one software layer. I bring this up because <clears throat> there are technologies like that that are being put out into the industry through open source. And if companies are really looking to achieve the benefits of hyper-converged and converged infrastructure and head down those types of uh, paths, you don't just have to go and buy hyper-converged and converged infrastructure, but you can start to implement other enabling technologies like this OnRack technology I'm talking about right now. You can look to see how these types of simplifications in your management stack across the entire data center 
can help you start to achieve things so that as you actually become better at that, it becomes that much easier to start to consume hyperconverged and converged. And so, it, but if a customer's looking at themselves, and this is the kind of the follow on there, if a customer's looking at themselves and going, okay, we're doing it the old way and we want to start doing it the new way, why? I mean, they can just skip hyperconverged altogether and con uh, skip converged altogether and skip all that, throw all their hardware out, and they can just jump all the way into the cloud and they don't need any infrastructure. So why even why even do this all together? Why why can't they just stop doing IT altogether and just go straight up to the cloud? Well, the funny thing is, I think that's been tried. Um, it's been tried by a lot of companies out there, and what happens is people realize that not everything works in the cloud. Cloud does not equal nirvana, unfortunately. Um, the premises of what cloud brings to you are things that people want to achieve, but moving to the public cloud specifically has a lot of implications that people don't always take into account. And I know uh, one of the common ones people say is, oh, the cl public cloud is not secure. That's not totally true. There's actually a lot of very security-heavy public clouds that are out there. What happens in the public cloud environment is it's a loss of control. And it's also a version of lock-in that a lot of people don't want. Unfortunately, one of the biggest problems in the cloud industry is vendor lock-in. When you go and build something on Amazon, it's not super easy to go migrate that over to a VMware cloud or a Microsoft cloud or an OpenStack environment. And that problem does not appear to be solved in any which way from anybody as of today very well. There are people doing it and there are ways you can pull it off. But unfortunately, as a business, people try not to get themselves locked into something. People also want to have some level of controls. And because of those two paradigms, moving everything into a public cloud is actually not something that's been successfully done for a large set of enterprise-level organizations. Now, if you're a startup, if you want to go and start yourself up by using the public cloud to get that going, that's great. But there is a certain point in time where you start to realize that either it's cheaper for you to build it yourself, which there's a lot of cost discussions around public cloud, I mean, Amazon specifically, I deal with this conversation all the time. It's not as cheap as you think at scale. You can actually do a lot of things cheaper on your own. Unfortunately, it's not as easy, right? People haven't simplified the deployment of that private cloud. So what you're finding is people now are realizing that going all in on public cloud is not where they want to go, even though they thought they did, but they have no way to do their own their own version of it yet. And that's what a lot of technologies are looking into. So what I would tell a customer is, you can look at going all in a public cloud, talk to other people that have tried to do it, understand the business implications, see if it meets all the business needs, everything, as I said, from cost to lock-in to all of your actual needs moving forward. And at some point in time, Understand that the hybrid cloud is actually a little bit more of a reality at this point where some things can go in public cloud, but you're going to want to run a lot of things on site and maybe in that cloud-like fashion. And that's really where CI and Hyperconverge are helping people is to help them achieve that, which has not been possible up until recently. Public cloud was just everybody go there and we're done. So, I mean, it sounds like it, you So the, the shorter answer is it's not the killer bullet. It's not the silver bullet of uh, running your own infrastructure. 
Well, if you want the short answer, yeah, that's it. I got to boil it down. We got to boil it down every once in a while. Um, so <laughs> I, I, we have just a couple of questions left. Um, you know, again, you've you've uh, educated us fully for uh, a little over an hour. Um, as you know, if we want to pull back a little bit on the on rack thing, which is part of the last questions we had. Um, first of all, I understand on rack is, uh, being open sourced. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, so within the next, uh, I hate to give you an exact date, but within the next few weeks to two months, um, we are planning on open sourcing it publicly. Now the really awesome thing is we've already moved on rack into GitHub. So if you go to github.com slash rack HD, then you're going to actually see the uh, the pages for RackHD, which is the open source name of OnRack. Right. And the really cool thing for that is we're actually developing out of open source. We do not have a separate repository inside of EMC for OnRack. It is all out of that GitHub repository. It looks like it's not, um, when I was checking a couple of weeks ago, and I was just checked just now, um, it looks like it's not a hundred percent there. Is that uh, it's uh, being... it is it is all there, but we have the private bit checked until we actually give ourselves the go ahead to uncheck it. Okay, and we're just doing a few logistics on the back end. The really cool thing is we have the hard problem solved. Um, Rack HD is tied to the Apache Two license for open source, so uh, that so far everybody's been ecstatic that we used Apache Two. Um, as soon as we uncheck that box to make it all public you will have day one pull request capabilities, which means anybody out there, whoever wants to, can download the entire thing, can utilize it under the Apache 2 license, and they can contribute their own additions and their own code back into RackHD, which we will then take through the commit process, we will validate, and we will then add them in. And so, uh, and obviously you're, you're requesting that people actually uh, fully share and fully contribute, not just fork it out and make it their own thing and not put back in. Uh, you kind of want to make this thing bigger and better by the power of the community. Oh, definitely. That, that's, and that's why we did the Apache 2 license. That's why it's all, all going to be driven out of GitHub. We're trying to make this as open source friendly as possible day one upon release. You're going to see everything from all documentation, API documentation, you name it, will be there. Um, you will actually have the forums and the ability to reach out to the people that are experts in this area. And we actually already have customers and partners that are basically just waiting to get their hands into the code to be able to contribute back. Because the really awesome thing is the more people that we have contribute back to this, the quicker you're going to see it delivered through our own CI products as well, the quicker you're going to see it um, meeting the needs of more and more people. And so, you know, when I was looking at this thing, when I first heard about OnRack and all the things that it can do, uh, it reminds me of another project that came out of the office of the CTO um, through another big brain like yours. Uh, guy's name was Nick Weaver, uh, now over at Intel. Uh, and he and uh, his team, I think there was a maybe a Dan um, that was on the team as well, came out yep. with Project Razor. And right. so this feels a bit like Project Razor. So is this a evolution of Razor? Is this a similar concept? Is it the exact same code or is it, um, you know, where, what are the ties between this and Razor, if any? So the funny thing is there are no ties. There's no overlap, no code with it. Um, Project Razor, when that was done by Dan and Nick and others, um, that had a very specific purpose in life, which was to give you a programmatic way to basically load operating systems on servers, right? That was really its goal in life. Um, the, where OnRack actually came out of was a very different premise. 
OnRack came out of the concept that at EMC specifically, we had a big problem in that every time we built an appliance or a platform, we had different hardware under almost everything. Whether it's VMAX, VNX, Extreme IO, going out with Qantas servers for the VX rack, we have Intel servers and a VSpecs Blue. You know, in the future, who knows where that takes us, right? Dell, HP, all the fun stuff. Well, we didn't want to have to keep managing all the different higher layers in the software stacks every single time we wanted to qualify it on a new hardware platform. So the whole concept of OnRack came out of the fact that we wanted to be able to talk down to hardware and control hardware from a single control plane. And that's exactly what we're getting here. We wanted to be able to upgrade and downgrade the firmware and load any OS that we wanted on anything and be able to create these workflows that say, if you're loading that OS, OnRack, please go and upgrade the firmware in that LSI controller. Please configure this Intel NIC in this way, all because that workflow has been built like that inside of OnRack. So OnRack goes way beyond where Razer actually originally intended and almost at some level sits below what Razer had originally done also. We go down deep, deep, deep into the actual hardware level. Wow. That, that, that's one of those uh, other things that I want to look into. It's, it keeps coming up. We keep hearing more and more about it. It's uh, the fact that we're open sourcing it is is really cool. So I'm curious to uh, to follow the life of of this product after it's released into the wild and, and see what its adoption looks like. Yeah, no, I'm very excited. Luckily, with it, for people that get into the VX rack uh, uh, game, it's already going to be embedded in version one of the VX rack. That was part of why this is not a typical CTO office project. It's actually something that's really being consumed by products going out. And as of next year, you're going to see it living underneath the likes of other things like Caspian, right? Um, as well as some of the other projects that you'll see coming out of EMC. Very cool. Well, hey, Brad, we are we are uh, grossly out of time. Um, once again, uh, you, you know, you've blown our minds with some really cool stuff surrounding, you know, converged and and hyper converged and. You know, frankly, the, all the software, right, and the MNO stack uh, surrounding that that uh, environment. But um, you know, I know you do. You, you kind of travel around. You do presentations. Do you have any keynotes or anything coming up in the future? Uh, as of right now, I don't have anything on the docket uh, except I have a lot of uh, customer briefings and customer meetings I'm doing right now. Okay. Uh, no major keynotes that uh, that are on the docket. So. So, what's the best way for for folks to reach out to you? Uh, I know you're on Twitter. You've got a blog. Um, are those the, the best, the best avenues to get at you? So Twitter is great. Um, my Twitter handle is bmaltz, B-M-A-L-T-Z. Um, that's probably the easiest way for most public people to get me. My blog, unfortunately, I was never very good at keeping it up, so that's not a great way. Um, and there's always at EMC. Um, you can always reach out to me if you guys can figure out my email address at EMC. It's, uh, my name is Brad Maltz, so you can take it from there. Um, and those are probably the two easiest ways. Okay. Well, very cool. Hey, Brad. So again, thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, Brian, and I certainly appreciate it. Uh, my assumption is that our our listeners will appreciate it as well. So for all you listeners out there, again, uh, hit us up on, on social media. Let us know how we're doing, how you like the podcast. Um, if there are new topics, different topics, or people that you want us to, to bring on the show, and we'll be more than happy to do that for you. So with that, let's close out the hot aisle today. Again, my name is Brent Piotti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. And Brad Maltz. Thanks again, sir. Thank you, guys. Whoop.